0: Hey, I'm sex, love, and relationship therapist, Dr. Laura Berman. And for the past 30 years, I've been helping people just like you learn to love and be loved better. Here on the Language of Love Conversations, I'm talking to some of the world's most influential and revolutionary experts, thought leaders, spiritual teachers, and celebrities about love, sex, and relationships from a mind, body, and spirit perspective. And that way, my goal is to awaken your mind, body, and soul. It's time to become fluent in the language of love. Stephanos Sifandos is a transformational relationship coach who has worked with thousands of people from all over the world, elite special forces, Olympic gold medalists, high-performing CEOs, entrepreneurs, champion fighters, couples, individuals and has so much wisdom to share. I have followed him for a long time, enjoying the wisdom and the work that he does around doing what I love to do, helping you learn to love and be loved better. So I'm so excited because in this conversation, we're gonna dive into what Stephanos, or Steph as he likes to call himself or be called, what he considers the five major blocks to love, as well as the healing modalities that he has found most helpful in addressing those wounds that really create those blocks, as well as what is the definition of healthy love and how do you know when to throw in the towel? We're going to be getting into all of that in this episode of The Language of Love. Steph, I'm so happy to talk to you and so grateful that I get to share you with my peeps and the wisdom. I've been following you for a long time on social media. I love all the wisdom. I'm very aligned with a lot of your teaching. And I'm so excited to dig in with you a little bit around divine masculine, divine feminine, healing, the blocks to love, all of that. But let's start just with your story, because I think that's a big part of what makes you and your teaching so rich and compelling. You kind of come to this quite honestly. (laughs) Can you share some of your story?
1: Yeah, sure. You know, I always, when I'm asked this question, I always wonder what parts of one story would be relevant to your audience. (laughs) And so I'd I'd put it back to you just for a moment and say, which specific parts would you like to hear more about?
0: Oh boy. I think really all of us struggle with pain and trauma. Many of us have struggled with addictions. I think you didn't start off as a healer, right? You were, I'm not sure what you were doing before you started doing this. But I know that you've had a lot of trauma in your life, so I want to hear about that. And also, one of the things that we talk about a lot in this show and that I find myself consistently talking about in my own life and as I'm counseling others when we do our sessions and things like that is that almost always our deepest pain is underneath our deepest purpose and out of that pain very often with healing comes our greatest purpose. And so maybe that's what's underneath the question that I'm asking you, if that helps direct it.
1: Yeah. Well, I've been in, I don't consider myself a healer per se, but I've been in the personal transformation, personal growth space for about 22 years in a formal way. Mm-hmm. I'm 40 years old. So I guess you could say I've been doing this for all my adult life. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't doing anything different really before this, you know, odd jobs here and then along the way, I own different businesses in different industries and still do, but really the personal transformation education space has been a big part of my life for a very long time. And really what what influenced me in moving towards that were my own experiences, life experiences growing up as a child, my own pain. I grew up in a very violent, volatile household, physical abuse, emotional abuse, great disparity between my parents, a lot of confusion and uncertainty. It was very difficult for me as a child growing up i felt very unsafe and not connected and relationships were just very difficult for me i was very shy and very withdrawn very withheld as a child as a teenager as well and that all started to change as i grew as i became healthier i was overweight as a kid as well and when i started losing that weight and you know hormones started kicking in i started to become attracted to females and And just as I started to grow more and more, I started coming out of that, but I never really dealt with my trauma. I never really dealt with my pain. And so it leaked out in relationships, in abrasive ways, in patient ways. I was cheating on my partners. I was dishonest. I wasn't present. You know, I was emotionally abusive. And I was attracting partners that were at some level, not all partners, but some similar to that as well. And I was really recreating the circumstances that were familiar to me of my childhood because I didn't know any better. And i didn't know or want to or was able to or willing to really look at my stuff and really until i did nothing really changed in my life and i kept cycling through despair and disconnection dishonesty and disappointment and desperation and all the d's right so it was tough in that sense and and i was attempting as i mentioned earlier i was in the personal transformation i am in the personal transformation space i was attempting to help myself by helping others without realizing yeah. it. I think that's a mistake most practitioners, coaches, oh, yeah. you know, people <laughs> service make. <Yeah. laughs>
0: and you can do, I mean, believe me, we both know lots of transformational teachers and healers who are not at all doing what they're preaching or not able to, or and it's usually with good intentions. It's not like they're setting off to like mm. manipulate people or pretend they're something they're not. It's sure. usually in an effort to heal ourselves, right? That we're learning things and then we're teaching others. But I agree that there's only so far you can take it, that work, if you're not really willing to do the work yourself. Eventually, it falls flat is what I like to call spirituality or transformation light. You can get that like first wave of people that you can teach, but anyone who wants to take it deeper, you can't really meet them there because you haven't gone deeper. So what was the turning point for you that really called on you to go deeper into your healing?
1: relationships a particular relationship where there was a breakup in that relationship and she you know I, I wasn't even proactive in really sharing with her where i was but she found out that i was cheating in that relationship and that just became this cascade effect of deeper self evaluation and self-exploration and that, be- that was a really big catalyst for my own real internal big internal pivot
0: Yeah. There was something I'm just remembering. I'm finding it now. What you wrote, you said, I think this is in sort of some of your bio, but you say, I saw the look on my girlfriend's face at the time, the pain in her eyes, my interior flooded with shame and memories came flooding back, undealt with trauma began to resurface. And I felt myself spiraling her pain and my actions activated parts of me that had been hidden for so long. I mean, that's such a beautiful description of what I like to call an AFGE, another fucking growth experience, like one of those big moments, traumas, dramas. And it's not like you hadn't broken hearts before, but there was something about that moment that broke you, you know, and that experience, I'm sure it was more than a moment that broke you open what was it that was was it just the right time and the right circumstances and it just kind of was a catalyst for bringing up all these connections and memories for you
1: yeah i think it was the right time i remember very distinctly speaking with a, a very close friend of mine he was it was literally a couple of weeks before that unraveled maybe days before that unraveled. he didn't even know the half of or and that's a saying he, didn't, he only knew a very very light portion of what I was doing I was hiding so much from everyone and he said man you you can't keep living like this this isn't fair on your partner this isn't fair on you I mean do you really want to why are you with her if you're doing this and and again he knew a, a very small portion of the actions that I were taking and and I I remember very clearly saying to him I know man I need to stop this and I want to stop this and in fact I'm done with this and I was. In that moment, I said, I'm done with this. And all I knew was that I was not going to continue to be dishonest. Mm -hmm. And as it happens, days or a couple of weeks later, it unraveled itself.
0: Yeah. And you were ready. You were ready to sort of claim authenticity and honesty, which of course requires that you go into the shadows, right? Which I guess is is where it began for you of really diving into the healing, which it seems like informs a lot of your work today. I know you and i, I join you in this, are a huge fan of breath work as a form of trauma and release. So we're going to talk about that. But before and some other things that I want to ask you about, but before we get into all of that, one of the things that I know you teach about and and use as a, construct to organize a lot of the transformational work you do is exploring the common blocks to love can you share some of the most common blocks and how they show up in our relationships?
1: yeah yeah so there are a few of course but there are five often prominent blocks to love and it's abandonment commitment intimacy loss and rejection and so if we experience any of these or some of these growing up, particularly during our formative and developmental years, where our perception of the world, relationships, intimacy, love being safe or unsafe, closeness to being safe or unsafe, our values, where all of this is formed, you know how we give and receive love, we'll often take these fears or these blocks into our adult intimate relationships. And so, for example, if as a child, one of our parents left and there was a divorce, which so many, families, yeah. divorce these days, you're well over 50% or separate, then you may feel this sense of abandonment and you'll carry that fear, that hypervigilance into adult intimate relationships. Yeah. And so you, you'll proceed with caution. You'll act from a place of desperation, fear, maybe neediness to hang on so that person doesn't abandon you. You may not be yourself. You may wear masks. That's you an might example.
0: sabotage, right? Like you yeah. kind of find something wrong with them or-
1: do yeah, something well, all, to
0: sabotage before they can leave you.
1: Yes, and it appears as sabotage, but it's not really sabotage in the truest form. It's more protection.
0: Yeah,
1: and it comes off in the form of sabotage. There's some level, some reality. Yes, it's sabotage. But yeah, what, no. But you're doing it beautiful.
0: to protect yourself from abandonment.
1: Correct. Yeah, correct. Yeah, they're the the five sort of big ones that I, I identified, yeah. and I did. A, I produced a love block assessment as well to help you sort of get clear on you know what what is prominent within your life, if any, and maybe you don't, maybe you have a, a healthy relationship to these potential blocks and fears and, and you don't have any of them that are prominent or they're not dormant in you, but they it, it's good to know what is actually driving us underneath what's yeah. underneath.
0: Yeah. And so let's just talk about it a little bit more just to give people a taste of this. Obviously they can do the assessment and they can dig more into this, but we talked about abandonment. What does the commitment block look like?
1: Yeah. The commitment block looks like... <laughs> Where we we struggle to make commitment to anything or anyone, including you know businesses, mortgages, living in one place, staying you know rooted and grounded. Commitment is death for us, so it feels that way, right? We feel constricted. That usually comes from so having a, having a fear or holding a fear of of commitment usually comes goes side by side with feeling restrained in the world, so not having access to freedom or fear of losing our freedom. And often in intimate relationship, we have this perception that we will get swallowed up, so we cannot commit to that thing. We have to keep it at a distance. We have to keep the relationship at a distance. We have to keep the person at a distance. We have to keep how close we get to them at a distance as well. And so we refuse to commit. We refuse to move with certainty. Part of that could be because there was so much uncertainty in our own lives. Yeah. Part of that could be promises were broken to us by our parents when, you know, dad said, hey, I'm going to play with you this this Sunday, but ended up working all day. Mm-hmm. And that happens long enough. And often enough, that word doesn't mean anything to yeah. you. And so commitment isn't safe.
0: Yeah. Or it comes dependable. with too much pain. Yeah. Mm. What's another block? Let's go through the other ones
1: too. Yeah, sure. So there's uh, loss is another example. So loss is another block. Yeah. And that's pretty, I don't want to say straightforward, but loss and abandonment can somewhat, they can get blended sometimes, but loss is really that, that sudden loss of someone significant to you, right? And you carry this fear. In adult intimate relationship, you'll carry this fear of, what if I lose this person? So you'll either not date and you won't spend time with anyone and you won't be intimate because of the fear of loss is so strong. Or if you are in a relationship, you cling on and you hold on. You have to be everywhere that they are and you have to know where they are and you have to know what they're doing. And it's not because you're trying to be controlling where well, you are, but you're not <laughs> trying to control them. You're trying to control yeah. the circumstances. So you avoid this fear of feeling or experiencing loss and the pain that that brings.
0: Okay, good. And the next one.
1: Yeah, and these are in no particular order by the way intimacy so intimacy is another one so for example when you were growing up getting close with someone maybe a friend at school or friends at school a friend's group you were teased you were humiliated you got close with a friend's group and then all of a sudden they all decided well we don't want you in the group anymore see you later getting close can be really scary and unsafe and so really with intimacy when we're talking about our adult relationships it's just we're not vulnerable we're not open we're not showing ourselves we're not we're not exposing who we really are in the world we're scared to be seen and we're scared to be ourselves and that can also come from again being teased excessively being bullied perhaps you have a an attachment style that's disorganized which means my attachment style is disorganized so i grew up with love i had love and care in my family but i had a lot of violence as well it's very confusing that can disrupt one's nervous system where intimacy is unsafe, closeness is unsafe, and it's confusing. And so now we have a fear of getting close because every time we would get close, our experiences, or my experience, I'll speak for myself, was when I would get close, when I thought everything was okay, bang, it wasn't get okay. Get
0: gobsmacked. Yeah. yeah. So you can't really predict or count on that kind of consistent yeah. care and safety. Yep. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the last one that you know, I speak to, and of course there are more, but rejection. Rejection is a really tough one because I'm of the belief that, know, I'm not sure if rejection in its purest form actually exists. And what I mean by that when I say that is I think we come to life, to relationships with our own predisposed ideas, conscious and unconscious, our own set of history or histories of how we see the world and what we value, what we like and what we don't like, what we are repelled by and what we are attracted to, which is also informed by so much of our resolved and unresolved trauma our life experiences. So when we're saying no to something, it may appear to be rejection against us, but really it could be rejection against something that I am holding that appears familiar to that person, but it's not necessarily me, the core of who I am that's being rejected. It could just be an expression or an aspect of self or an action or a behavior, but that behavior is not me, that action is not always me. There are fine lines here to walk around this, but ultimately rejection is, you know your self-worth has been diminished as a young person. Your ego has taken a hit. You've never been enough for those that you've looked up to, aka primary caregivers or parents. You know Your true sense of self has been mocked, has been rejected. You've been teased for asking questions or or exploring your sexuality or whatever it may be. Every time or often when you have gone into something new, you've moved into a curiosity, it's been shut down. You've been shut down as an individual. And so we want to avoid that like the plague as adults. So we don't show our true we wear, we wear many masks we acquiesce we're often people pleasers so we want to make sure that person's maximise their interests are maximized ours are minimized as a result of that we want to make sure that they're taken care of usually at the expense of our own well-being so rejection's tough as well
0: yeah they're all tough and as you know yeah. it all has to do with our upbringing this is something that just comes up so often in my work and in and I think in all of our work is healing. It's not that our parents were evil or bad or mm. malintended, but they uh. had their own. We have generational trauma. They had their own traumas. They had their own emotional limitations and emotional immaturity. And it wasn't that they didn't love us. In many cases, they just didn't have the capacity to love us, support us, accept us in the way we needed because of their own wounds. Right. But then it creates that legacy. And so I want to talk about what it looks like in the divine masculine and the divine feminine as compared to sort of our usual understanding of masculine and feminine. And then some of your favorite ways, I know you're a huge fan and I am too of breath work, but some of the that as well as some of the other ways that you have found to sort of successfully address these blocks and start to heal the wounds underneath them.
1: Yeah, so if I address the, the modalities that can be used to address some of these blocks, so I, I'm, I guess I'm schooled and educated and practiced in many different modalities over the years. I continue to study. There's definitely so much to know and learn about the human body in its complete form and the human being. But some of my go-to modalities are definitely, you know, modalities such as internal family systems or inner child work, mm-hmm. understanding the stages of development in developmental psychology. Somatic work, breath work, working with the unconscious mind. I mean, somatic works a very loaded and robust yeah. modality to to use, of course. But you know, really, just you know, relational psychology as well. Neuropsychology is also important. I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a degree in neuropsychology, but you know, leveraging principles of that mm-hmm. of those disciplines is really important. And just really holding, holding a very safe space for individuals. Often, <laughs> safety is the healing. So if people most people that experience trauma have just felt unsafe in their environments and so when we create safe spaces for each other and we do that in very slow ways and we help people retrain their nervous systems to learn how to self-regulate at a physiological level you know the psychology and the emotionality and the spirituality of self unravels in more gentle ways that can be dealt with in more harmonious ways that's how i I work with no matter what the block is or what the issues are usually it's issues that are compounded. it's not just one for multifaceted right. beings, multilayed with multilayed issues, they can be addressed in very slow, methodical ways.
0: Hey, don't forget to go to drlauraberman.com. You can find so much great information there and sign up for my newsletter so you get weekly updates on how to love and be loved better. And also on my website, you can get my brand new ebook, You're Not Crazy, You're Just Ascending. It's a practical guide to spiritual awakening that many of us are going through right now. And it's enough to make you feel crazy. So check it out. I'm here for you. Always helping you learn to love and be loved better. And so I know you work, do you work one-on-one with people or do you, I know you do a ton of stuff with groups. Do you also do one-on-one stuff? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've been doing one-on-one work since I was 18 in Uh various forms and expressions. So you know, I started off with hypnosis and basic counseling and NLPs, that's what I I studied that before my actual degree in psychology and behavioral science and social psychology. But one on one work, I work with couples as well, and I do small groups, large groups, virtual, in person, et cetera.
0: And you're married now. How long have you been
1: married? Over four years.
0: (laughs) Think about that. And the two of you do groups together, right? You do. do these, I know you do some, is it breath work specifically for the divine feminine that you do with your wife or other stuff as well?
1: Other stuff as well, every month we have a, a live three hour immersive here in Austin and it's live streamed and recorded. So physically live in person and live streamed and recorded. And we do that every month as a three hour immersive on relationship dynamics and definitely somatics and breath work is a big part of that and release and, and just being in, you know, essentially just being in sisterhood.
0: Yeah. I think that's a really powerful, I was watching something you posted the other day. I think it was, I don't remember when. About which sort of struck me because I am estranged from, unfortunately, from my sister who has a very chaotic attachment style. Let's just leave it at that. But you were talking about the sister wound. I think you were talking about it more about women just with other women. It doesn't have to be your sibling per se. I mean, I have amazing beautiful and blessed to have amazing wonderful sisters that aren't my biological sisters but that are my soul sisters. But I think that's something that isn't talked about enough, this whole idea, not necessarily with regard to siblings, although it can be, but this idea of the sister wound. and I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit.
1: Yeah, you know trust is at the crux of this, to be honest of mo- I think I reflect on this in a deeper way, at the epicenter of most wounds is trust or an inability to trust or it's not safe to trust. Yeah. And particularly the sister wound, when a woman is hurt by her mother or by literally her sisters, or her, her female friends growing up, there's this projection that's then taken from that saying, if my mother was untrustworthy and she's a woman, then all women are untrustworthy yeah. and I have to pull back, shut down, be careful, not be myself, not be vulnerable, wear masks, etc." right? And it's a, more of an unconscious projection than anything else until we become aware of it, of course. Right. And so that wound per se stops us from being intimate and being close. And as I mentioned earlier, it's in intimacy that great healing, deep healing takes place. It's, yeah. in, that, in, it's in that intimacy that safety is created and new versions of ourselves come through.
0: And so when you're working with groups, just so people understand what happens, maybe they want to come to one of your events or join it Mm -hmm. live streaming when you're working with groups, when you talk about having a safe container, it's not just I know and I've done this myself when I work with groups. There's a lot of encouragement to to literally hold one another, to energetically hold one another, to be next to one another, to create space, to not have judgment, so what does that look like in action and an experience like that? How would you describe it?
1: How would I describe what specifically?
0: Yeah. Like what happens at one of these monthly sessions, let's just say with one on healing the sister wound or the feminine wound, the mother wound.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So each session is slightly different in terms of I usually theme out each month. And so the month of December is grief. The month just passed was in November was trust, as an example. And then we work around those themes and integrate them into relationship dynamics. So, where is grief stopping you from having the relationship that you want, as an example? Right. And so we mm-hmm. work with that. So, before we you know we ground in the space, we may do some, some movement, we may do some, some vocalization. There's, there's somatic work that's part of that. We then go into breakout groups and we'll do some experiential practices. Then we'll move into breath work and then we'll take sharing and live coaching and really integrate the whole experience. That's the general structure of the event or of the experience on a monthly basis. That works pretty well.
0: Yeah, because you're sort of taking them out into the mind, then into connection through experiential exercises and then into the body. And then back to integrate it all. Let's talk about divine feminine and divine masculine. We hear that it's like pop psychology term everywhere, right? I want to get your definition of that.
1: Yeah, I'll rock the cart for a bit. It's bullshit. Yeah. Go ahead. And I'll tell tell you why it's bullshit (laughs) because it's polarized. Mm -hmm. And for the majority of people, I can't speak for every single person, but- the culture around divine feminine divine masculine is a polarized notion of perfection that doesn't exist and you can't have the divine in this realm of duality you cannot have the divine without the shadow or the darkness the dark and light right and so what makes divine masculinity divine and divine femininity divine is the full embrace and the application of compassion and love to all parts of ourselves including the parts that are ugly or unwanted or unseen, or shadow-like, or, or with that, the ones that we, we detest and are repelled by? Can we bring that and embrace all of us? It would be very easy. It's convenient if I gave you a suitcase with $100 million tax-free and said, here you go. Enjoy that. You'd go, great. I'll enjoy it. I'll give it away. I'll do this with it. I'll go buy a car. I'll go on holiday. Whatever the fuck you want to do with it. It doesn't matter, right? But you're going to enjoy it. But if I said, here you go. Here's a suitcase full of pain. You're going to go, I don't want that. Now, You shouldn't necessarily take that because it's not yours. But here's the thing. We can't escape the spectrum of experience that we're going to have in life. But we we do our best to reject the ones that are really uncomfortable and numb ourselves in the process and suppress and repress. And so for something to be divine, I think in this context – It really, all of it needs to be embraced, not just the convenient parts. Yeah.
0: And I agree with you a hundred percent. And it's something that is so scary for people to think about and do. And you're absolutely right. We'll do anything to avoid being with the pain when ironically it's being with the pain that really sets us free and helps us integrate and become whole. So shadow work, right? Obviously is a part of what you do as well. Let's just flip it and talk about the ways in which we abandon ourselves in the feminine and in the masculine, because I do think that there are a lot of ways in which we kind of pop psychology out, this whole concept of the feminine and masculine, when the truth is we all have both feminine and some, you know, women can have a lot more masculine than feminine and women and men can have a lot more feminine than masculine. It's not that men are all masculine and women are all feminine. We have both inside us, but to me, it's, and I'm curious what you think when we run into trouble is when we get stuck either in avoiding the, you know, needing to be perfect and avoiding those darker, scarier, wounded parts of ourselves, or when we identify and start creating these stories around what masculine and feminine looks like. And start adopting that. I even see this in the spiritual community. You know, I'm a divine masculine. Like my girlfriends and I, kind of, you know, have this joke about I'm a divine
1: masculine man. If someone ever fucking says that to you, yeah. if a man says I'm, I'm the, <laughs> the embodiment of divine masculine, walk yeah. the fuck away.
0: Yeah, exactly. We're like ew, not because we don't want someone who's the embodiment of the divine feminine, but that like you don't trust that that self-proclamation. <laughs> but it happens, right?
1: I think we're very quick. See, I'm of the the approach that we're a little too quick to look at masculine-feminine polarity and dynamics. And firstly, yeah. I, I resonate with you. So we're 100% masculine and 100% feminine. And every human being has that. It's just two sides of the same coin, so to speak, but which we choose to activate at any given time will determine what energetic we're in. And sometimes we'll be in a blend of both that will interchange between two. But I think what, what probably needs to come first before we start getting into masculine-feminine expressions, firstly, number one, human qualities first. That's number one. Number two, we've really got to look at our, our inner child. We've got to look at developmentally how we've formed ideas about the world, ourselves and relationships. And that has often come from our years of in the womb to up to 10 or 12 years old. And mm-hmm. so that there becomes, I think, more important than looking at masculine feminine practices or even masculine, feminine polarity dynamics. Like when we when we tidy up our unresolved trauma, you would be so surprised how much greater connection, intimacy, magnetism there is in a relationship.
0: I agree with that one hundred percent. Now, what about polarity? Because I do find that in a couple, in a sexual relationship, not that you stay in the same state, right? Like sometimes you're going to be on one end of the continuum, masculine, feminine. Sometimes on the other. But that when there is sexual attraction, there is often a polarity where one of you is more in one and one of you is more in the other. Whether you're two women, two men, two non-binaries, doesn't
1: matter. Would you agree with that? At some level, it's an interesting, almost an oxymoron because non-binary is saying there's no, at some level is saying there's no opposites. And so if there's no opposites and there's no polarity, that's a strange, conceptually, philosophically, that's strange to me.
0: Yeah, to Nothing, me it's not because yeah. they're talking about gender and gender expression, where to me, when we're talking about, and maybe I need to clarify this, when we're talking about the masculine and feminine, it's not gender. It's, you know, so human versus beings, human structure. Beings. It's containment versus expression. It's these sort of dualities of ways of being that sure. sure. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I definitely resonate with that. That's the expression that we all hold. I don't want to say equally. I think we all have capacity for it. It's what mm-hmm. we choose to activate within us that determines what energetic that we're in. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it, like, it's totally exclusive. You know, it's mutually gender and that are mutually exclusive to me. I work with a yeah, of not,
1: lesbian couples. They're not connected. Sorry,
0: they're not,
1: sorry. Well, they're not exclusive. That's right. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yes. So, Yeah. I'm interested in this. So what do you think is the biggest or some of the biggest challenges or let's reverse it and make it in the positive. What are some of the keys in your mind to really creating the deep sustaining connection that like healthy love? I just did this event for, and it was really cool. It was a whole national thing online For kids in this organization called the Just Keep Living Organization. It's like a mental health organization that Matthew McConaughey started. And they do these after-school kind of enrichment things once a month or once a week. And I was doing one on what's healthy love. And I thought, God, how great that I get to talk to a bunch of high schoolers about what healthy love looks like and what the red flags for not so healthy love looks like. But how would you describe?
1: Healthy life. We go back to what we were speaking to around being clear of vessels of truth and not living from our trauma. That is the fertile ground for healthy love to flourish. Because now we're not projecting, we're not judging harshly. We're not placing the responsibility of our well-being and our growth in the palms and the hands of others. We're really we're taking responsibility for ourselves. We're able to regulate our nervous systems in conflict and difficulty. We're able, yeah. As a result of that, we're able to get curious and ask questions. As a result of that, we're able to really listen and hear, hear our partners. We may hold the belief that the relationship itself is a, is a vehicle for growth and is a teacher for us both. And with that, we're not threatened by our partner when they behave in ways that isn't conducive to the longevity of the relationship, but rather we can pause, we can breathe, we can set healthy boundaries, of course, we can make healthy requests. We're not demanding. There are many elements to healthy love. You know, there there is healthy sexual connection to self and to other. There's safety in the relationship to speak to and communicate to difficult things, including needs and wants and desires and change of mind, and you know, asking big questions, making big moves, big life decisions together. There needs to be a, I believe, in healthy love, a space for play and fun and joy and connection in that way. There's a lightness. There needs to be space for lightness as well. Yeah. And there needs to be a willingness to traverse the difficult and the murky and the dark and the, and the challenging, you know?
0: Without abandoning,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah. With, without, you know, succumbing to our own pain or our own our own past traumas.
0: Yeah, beautiful. And let me ask you the question that I get asked all the time and see what your answer is. When do you know that it's time to throw in the towel on a relationship?
1: Only the individual can know when it's time. And that will be influenced and impacted by so many variables and in, in inputs, such as how deeply a person has worked with their own wounds of attachment and insecurity and so forth. Because if the end codependence, because the more codependent someone is and insecure they are, they'll hang on to the relationship longer than needed. The right time to throw in the towel is when You know your values don't align anymore one of you both of you are unwilling to do the work your non-negotiables in relationship have been compromised you've exhausted your options like you have made changes in this relationship like you never have in any other relationship but things are still the same the other person's not meeting you where you need to be met you're unable or unwilling to meet them where they want to be met you've grown You, you feel you've taken all the lessons that you can from the relationship like growth has stopped they're probably pretty decent signs. It's time to to throw in the towel, and how you do how you throw in the towel matters as well.
0: Say more on that. What do you mean?
1: Well, you can do it abrasively and abruptly. You can do it being very rude. You can do it from pain and trauma. You can do it with projection and judgment and hate, or you can do it with love and compassion. Yeah. And maturity would
0: be the preferred way, (laughs) just so you guys are clear. And then once you've done that, right, and you've been clear, and I'll just tack on the back of that, which some people need to get to. I, I don't think we have to get to this place by any means, but at some point, if you're really scared and it's and all those other things that Steph is talking about are happening, but you're stuck. Eventually, the pain of being in the situation gets greater than the fear of leaving it. And that often is the tipping point that makes the difference, right? But when you yep. once you leave, what would you say, you know, needs to be in place, whether it's a time frame or circumstances to try love again? Because so often people, you know, that old stupid adage, the best way to get over someone is to get under someone else, right? So quickly. So many people rush, they're scared to be alone, they're dealing with their own rejection or abandonment traumas, their biological clock is ticking. I mean, there's a million reasons why people do Mm. this, but what would you say someone should be mindful of when they're thinking about, okay, I got out of this relationship, what are the steps to think about as I think about moving forward and seeking out a new one?
1: Space is really important and identifying the stuff that didn't work in the relationship And identifying old patterns that were coming up and how you could have done better and spending some time applying healing to those patterns, maybe working with someone, working on yourself, space from immersion into intimacy and novelty will give you an opportunity to work on yourself and refine some of those aspects that need, you know, growth and healing and change.
0: Yeah. I agree. And I think it's so important to take that time to really give yourself the space and time to not only heal, but to learn the lessons that you, because every relationship has so many lessons and so many sort of thorns that have been touched that we can excavate and explore for further healing. And then, as I'm always telling them, the more you heal yourself, the more you are whole yourself the better quality relationship you're attracted to and attract into your life. Because just like you were saying at the top of this interview, when you were talking about your own life stuff, you were saying that you were, the way I would phrase that, is you were in your wounding before you really started doing your own healing work. You were a frequency match for other wounded people to be in Mm -hmm. relationship with, right? That you're attracted to and attracting in people who are at the same level, more or less of emotional health as you are.
1: Yeah. Yep. I very much resonate with that. And we will, we will attract from the place that we are living from. Simple as that.
0: Yeah. 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 Your life is not what you do, it's what you are, right? Who you are, how you live internally as much as externally. Cause yeah. as we've already said, you can you can look quite fantabulous on the outside. <laughs> that doesn't necessarily translate to full health on the inside.
1: So true. So so true.
0: So what else is important that you think we need to know from your wealth of wisdom that you want to share before we wind down? If there's anything else, maybe we've touched on it all.
1: Well, I don't know if we've touched on it all. All of it
0: in one hour or
1: less. That's it. Plenty, plenty more. <laughs> Just to reiterate, be willing to traverse the difficulty and not polarize life. No, not, not that we want to have an addiction to the tough times and Use that as a badge of honor to demonstrate our value and worth in the world. More so just to not ignore the value that comes from the things that we tend to avoid in relationship and out of intimate relationship.
0: Yeah, that which you can't be with will definitely run your life. That's for damn sure. Yeah. And where can people learn more about your offerings, your courses, your events?
1: Yeah, thank you. So my social media channels, you know, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, at Stephanos Sefandos. And actually, I think Twitter's at Steph Sifandos. I don't give me enough characters. Um, mm-hmm. And then my website, stephanosafandos.com
0: Okay. And we'll make sure to put all of that in the show notes so you know how to spell it, stephanosafandos
1: Yeah. Dot com- uh, and then the, if the breathwork event is stephanosifandos.com slash feminine. Feminine.
0: Okay. Yeah wonderful thank you thank you thank you so much thank you for joining us and for sharing your wisdom and for all the wonderful work you're doing in the world i'm looking forward to joining you in one of your breathwork journeys that'd
1: be amazing appreciate you laura thanks for having me